A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello. Nam mihi nui, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later in the show, we'll reveal the paternities of this year's kākāpō chicks and find out whether any of the artificial insemination attempts were successful. But first, by day, Chris Walker is a PhD student at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. He's also the CEO of a new startup company called ElectroClear. And he and fellow student Patrin Ellenberger are developing a novel way to stop marine organisms growing on surfaces where they are not wanted. Whenever you put something underwater, biological growth accumulates there. And with very specific surfaces, you don't really want that. We had a Rena shipwreck back in 2011, I think, and it was too expensive to remove that ship. So it was very good that growth accumulated there and it became part of that ecosystem. But when you have, for instance, a pipeline access way or you have pontoons at a specific part in a marina that you don't want growth, we currently don't have very good solutions to stop that growth from occurring. So Electroclare is using electric fields underwater to inhibit growth on a specific surface. Traditionally, to stop, say, the bottom of your yacht getting covered in algae and various other stuff, people have painted anti-fouling paint, which tends to be Mm -hmm. very disruptive chemicals, which leach into the environment and really aren't good news. Yeah, essentially the the world's currently got the issue that you've got all these anti-fouling paints, the the major component is copper, and that's currently leaching into the environment. So if you go down to one of the main marinas in Auckland and you measure the water, you actually see a higher level of copper there because of all these boats. What there is is a balance between if you don't have anti-foul on your, on your boat, you're spreading invasive species around the world. And if you do, you're increasing the copper concentrations, which isn't good for the actual ecosystem around those boats. So at the moment, the balance sways towards anti-fouling your boat. But as soon as there's better solutions that have less toxins in them and work just as effectively, you're going to see that migrate over. With boats, you'll see they take their boat out approximately every two years to recoat the paint. Um, and to keep that anti-foul working. With infrastructure, you can imagine the port has a lot of underwater infrastructure that they can't pull out every two years. So what you get there is just growth for approximately 60 years for the lifetime of that infrastructure with no anti-fouling. So if a boat comes in with an invasive species, that can just latch onto the infrastructure and another boat comes in without it, and it can latch back on. And you've got all these spores and larvae in these marinas and ports that can just latch on and migrate around the country or internationally. Was there a specific species or a specific moment in time when this came on your radar, when you started thinking about it? My PhD supervisor, Ian Anderson, also a co-founder of Electroclear, he dives a lot. And Within Auckland, in the last five years, you would have seen this Mediterranean fanworm. It is now available in abundance in our Auckland harbours. And it's essentially this column structure. And it's got a worm inside this little column. And it comes out and it just releases this fan, 
which just moves slowly in the water and as organic material comes through it's filtering it and it eats that organic material. Um, the problem is so do our native mussels and so what you see is as we're trying to restock our mussel populations in our harbours this fanworm is outcompeting and it's making that really difficult to achieve. Recently actually there was an eradication attempt in the Bay of Islands so you had the fanworm we're not sure where it came from, but you've got a lot of boats going from Auckland to the Bay of Islands, so potentially it's our fault here. But the regional council, Northland Regional Council, organised two commercial diving teams to go down and try to eradicate this fanworm and remove it in a specific way, and then proceeded to check a lot more boats as they entered the Bay of Islands. So it's quite a costly thing to do as a reactive measure. So what we need to start doing is preventative solutions that stop this happening in the first place and that will actually save our country a lot of money in the future. That's where electroclear comes in. <laughs> so electro is to do with electricity? We wanted a solution, even for your boat, that you turn on a switch and it starts inhibiting growth. You don't have to have a toxin there leaching out over time that even if there's no growth for it, at night for instance, growth is very minimal. Light is, is one of the key contributors um, that is needed for growth. So at night, you could tone down your inhibition, save power. During the day, you could turn it back on. Temperature is important, so if, during the summer, you could increase it. During winter, you could decrease it. So what we're doing actually is inspired by the food industry. And the FDA in America approved electric fields as a pasteurization technique, I think, in 2007. And what that means, instead of heating your food up before you sell it and cooling it back down, they can pass it through these electric fields. So you see these massive conveyor belts and you see potatoes going straight through. I think there's actually an installation in Timaru where these potatoes go straight through this kind of conveyor belt electric field machine and it just puts a very high-intensity field across those potatoes. But a similar way, underwater, you can implement this field. And so you can imagine a positive side and a negative side. And as very small creatures come into contact with this field, how life works is if you want to move your arm, you move ion concentrations, these positive and negative charged ions around your body, and that creates your arm moving. So underwater, when a little algae spore wants to adhere, it shifts these ions and releases this adhesive. In the same way, if you want to release spores, if you want to populate the surface, it moves these ions around. But in an electric field, a high-intensity one, they struggle to move their ions to specific places. And that's the theory behind Electroclear's product. I tend not to think of electricity as something that goes well with water, though. You want to stop thinking of it as an electric fence underwater and start thinking of it as a cable, like when you charge your phone. So you're fine to touch that cable. There's no issues. It's fully shielded from this outside environment and and that's the same thing we're not actually putting electricity through the water what we're doing is dipping that cable into the water and that inherently creates this electric field and this works because those tiny little larvae the, the little spores that are floating around they're extremely small they're extremely small so uh, electric field of a certain intensity can affect them but most likely wouldn't affect a very small guppy, for instance, or a very small fish. For us, we could put our hands in and we could touch it, whatever, it, there's no issue. Um, as long as you don't go with a knife and cut it, in which case it would turn off very quickly, 
there shouldn't be any danger for us to be in the marina with it. So that's your concept. Uh, what have you been doing with that idea? The key is to work out what electric field works and how it inhibits. And to do that, we have installations in several partners, such as the Bay of Islands Marina and OBC Marina, and we can remotely control these installations, and essentially we have panels in the water implementing these electric field pulses. And after a couple of months, we go down and we see how effective those pulses were. And the key is to take in temperature and sunlight hours and all these different variables about that environment and see how well the system worked. And so right now we're in the middle of raising money and we're going to increase the installations to 10 across the country and much larger installations, a more commercially viable product. As you can imagine, a pair at a marina is about 1,000 square metres of underwater infrastructure. So to create a product that you can produce by the kilometre is the challenge now. So we've got a few concepts and we're going to be testing them out across the country and seeing which ones we can make most effective. Can you show me what you've been testing with so far? Have you got something here? Sure. If we hop over to the bench there. This is the setup from approximately about three months ago. So we've moved on from here, but this is essentially it. So we have a control panel, which isn't connected by cables to any of the setup. It's actually connected through the cellular network. So you can imagine this box with electronics in sitting on a marina pier and it's pulsing away, and then it is also connected to the mobile network and it's transmitting the health of the system to our control panel. And we can also send through the cellular network back and change variables on that electronics. If we think the pulse needs to be updated or or, or whatnot, we can send that remotely. So what we see here is out of this box comes four different tests. So we've got four channels. Handily coloured different colours. Yeah, we don't want to mix them up. And... Essentially, that means we can do four experiments simultaneously on the same pair. And over here, what we have, we can even turn it on, actually. So that's the sound of a phone going on, and it's connecting to the phone. That's how it's connecting to the cellular network currently. And you might hear a little flickering. Every time that LED is flickering is when it's implementing about 500 volts currently on these plates. But you'll see if you put your hand in here, switch around you can touch these plates no problem they're fully encapsulated even though there's 500 volts going on to these electrodes that's quite a few volts that's quite a few volts and we can go much higher too so (laughs) so the key is to encapsulate it with a material that can handle such the high voltage essentially when we did our first experiment we we contacted bay of islands marina and we said can we put some tests up in one of your pairs and they agreed to it and it took about six attempts before we could get something that lasted underwater with the electricity. Essentially, these materials are made to encapsulate high voltage, but they're not made to be in a marina with high voltage. That adds a lot more factors to consider. And there's not many applications where you have high voltage underwater. So it's been quite a bit of experimenting to get something that operates as well as we need it to. So how long have you had these in the water at marinas for now? We normally do about two-month experiments, and that's a good enough time to get barnacles adhering and growing, as well as different algaes and um, bryozoans and different kind of creatures. After two months, we can tell, is this working, is it not, is it sort of working, and then target it a different direction. There's a lot of electric fields you can implement, so it's narrowing down what's most effective. So if we move to the left, what you see is we're moving from 
kind of panels with flat electrodes onto kind of a cable structure. Now this is, what we're moving to is vinyl encapsulated cabling. And vinyl is used in a lot of swimming pools. So it has a virtually lifetime on the seabed. And we're also moving to high-density polyethylene, which is similar um, and, and can last a very long time on the seabed. So would the idea then be that you could wrap these cables around existing structures? We could integrate cabling into new infrastructure, and we're creating shell-like structures that we can kind of sleeve over existing structures. Essentially, we've got it working on these previous electrode implementations. Now we've got cabling that we can buy by the kilometre, and we've got this material that we can extrude by the kilometre, and can we get it working with that? So that is the test, and what we're doing over the next 12 months is getting that working. Because as soon as we have it working, we can start selling. We have moved this from an idea we had about two years ago. We've now got a whole lot of partners excited about it, and we're moving from the small panel to something that you could actually see in a commercial product. And that's quite exciting. Do you have some pictures of your test ones that show how effective they were compared to something that didn't have an electric current going um, through? With these, these electrodes, I do. So we've got essentially seven experiments. And they've all been in the water for, for weeks. So on the left here, you'll see that between the active and the control, there is basically no significant difference. So that's showing you that it's not just putting an electric field on, but it's having an electric field that is actually good at inhibiting growth. So there's a few tricks here on how to actually do it. So as you move where we are now, is we're actually seeing after two months there's considerable growth on the panels that were used as controls. And on the panels that uh, had the active field implementing, there's no growth at all. must have been pretty exciting when you pulled those out of the water and saw that it worked, though. Absolutely. We're very nervous. And you're waiting, and you don't want to pull it out of the water preemptively. So you're waiting there just going, should we check? And it was up in the Bay of Islands, so that's a three-hour drive. So sitting there and going, nope, we'll wait the six weeks out, and then we'll go up. <laughs> but it was very exciting to pull that out and actually see a considerable difference. Um, so the ones in the middle here were actually the ones from the Bay of Islands. So you see it, it had a few barnacles on the active one, uh, but on the control you can see considerably more. It very effectively worked, just not 100%. And what we've seen now is we can get 100% between these electrodes, very specifically. So if you move outside of that electrode region, you can have growth there. So the good thing about that is it's targeted. So with boats, currently you put paint on and you inhibit things on the seabed floor because the copper leaches out. Um, with this, you can very specifically say growth is fine, but not in this specific location and that's quite a nice feature of this technology. So we had very successful experiments with these panels, but they're just not able to be produced by the kilometre. So that's the trouble we're in at the moment, is, is how do we make this large scale. Thanks, Chris. That was Chris Walker from ElectroClear and the University of Auckland. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hotaka e pānaki tō tātou au whanui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Now, it's time to talk kākāpō. It's been a few weeks since we caught up with the news of this year's bumper breeding season. I'm pleased to report that following the deaths of two adults and five chicks to the deadly fungus aspergillosis, the population has been stable for a few weeks, 
with 142 adults and 72 living chicks. Some birds are still being treated for the disease, but the treatment does seem to be working. Here's Daryl Eason from Doc's Kākāpō Recovery Team in episode 22 of the Kākāpō Files, Kākāpō Dads Revealed, in which we catch up with the long-awaited results of the paternity testing to confirm the identity of some of the unknown fathers. It's always something I'm really keen to find out because the females, they tend to mate with multiple males. It's always a bit of a guessing game who the dads are going to be and it's always nice to find out. But we have to collect the samples in the first place. Usually we collect blood remnants from the hatched eggshell and if we don't get them, then we have to collect blood from a chick once it's grown up a bit and about three or four weeks old. So it's a long process by the time we collect all the samples and then get them processed in the lab. So you'd think it would be really obvious that if one female mated with one male, that might be the the dad. But there have been occasional surprises in the past when somebody snuck in and mated with the female without you realising. Have you had any of those sneaky matings this year? No, not at all this year. But then again, some of the females mate with two different males. Some of them with three different males. So it's those ones that are very unsure about. So that's where it gets really exciting. So how many of those females did you have who mated with several males? Probably about a third of them. So who did the dads turn out to be in those cases? Take it away, Daryl. There was a, one interesting bird. Two Meki mated with both Teatapur and Boss, and she had four chicks. And of her four chicks, one was fathered by Boss and the other three by Teatapur. And we've never had that before. The only time we've had mixed paternity broods have been following AI in the past. And generally, two-thirds of the time, it's the, the last male that mates who's the father. Um, I haven't looked at it thoroughly this year yet, but birds like Tutakul and the Kingi, whoever they mated with, they tended to be the father. And it didn't matter if they mated first or last. They tend to be the most successful male in that partnership. Yeah, so we've got a bit of stretching of the rules going on this year. In terms of successful males, we obviously had breeding on two islands, on Anchor Island and on Whenua Hau. In each case, who was the most successful male? Who fathered the most chicks? Well, the most on Whenua Hau was Komaru. That's interesting because he was just an eight-year-old bird, his first breeding season. So he ended up with ten living offspring. Ten living offspring in the, his first year? Yes. <laughs> that is extraordinary because it usually takes the males a few years to get into the swing of things, doesn't it? Absolutely, and this is the first year that we've had a bird less than 10 years old producing offspring. So we had both Komaru and Tutakul, 8 years old, producing 15 chicks between them. So Tutakul got five, that's amazing. They were both on Whenua Ho? That's right, Whenua Ho. So Komaru was the standout with 10 birds. The, the next most was five for Boss, Teatapo and Tudakor. What about on Anchor? On Anchor, Horton had 10 chicks. Takatimu had eight. So did Takingi. Yeah, so interesting. In the past, there's been some standout males, and I'm thinking, I always think fondly of Felix, but I know that I think Blades and Boss were other big hitters in the past. They're being a bit superseded by the new generation. They are really. Well, Felix is now on Hauturu, so he didn't get a chance to mate at all this year. 
I think we've had about 12 living offspring from him in the past, so we're giving other males a chance to breed. And Blades is by far the standout. I think he's had 19, well, we've got 19 living offspring from him. And as a result of that, after last breeding season in 2016, we moved him to Hotuu as well. So we really don't want to be overpopulating the new generation from just two or three males. We, we want to mix them up and have most males contributing fairly equally. So that strategy seems to be working. It seems to be. The disappointing thing this year was there were very few of the founder males from Stewart Island that, or even mated this year, let alone produced offspring. So Boss and Basil were the only founders that had offspring this year. So five from Boss and four from Basil. There are always some Stewart Island males who either haven't bred at all or have only bred poorly, and they did the same again this year? Yes, unfortunately. So there's about four or five of the Stuart Island males that have not bred at all. And I'm very keen to get them to breed. And so we're working hard to try and get their chances improved by making them the older birds. But again, even the young birds just were were more successful in attracting the mates this year. So that, that in itself isn't working. One of the things that I know you test, you don't just test paternities of the chicks that hatched, you also look at embryos that died. Um, did you see any interesting trends in that? Have you looked at that? It just tended to be embryos from a mix of most of the different males that ended up dying. Although there were dead embryos from Manu, Merv and Moss, just one or two between each of them, and but we had no living chicks from either of those three males. Oh, that's disappointing. Gulliver, I take it, you were already pretty confident that he had fathered Suzanne's chicks. That still holds? Yes, indeed. Yeah, that was fantastic to to confirm that. I was pretty sure since Suzanne only mated with Gulliver and we did follow up an AI with Gulliver's semen as well for Suzanne. Not that we'd know if that worked or not. But yes, all three of... Suzanne's chicks are Gulliver's offspring. So Richard Henry, the Fiordland male, finally has some grandchildren, apart and from Kuiya's. Absolutely, that's, that's fantastic. And, and Gulliver's pretty special too because he's the only living bird that carries two important MHC genes belonging to Richard Henry. So they, of course, are immunity genes that, and we don't have much diversity of them in the kakapo population, so it would be good to hopefully be passing them on and into the future generation. Are you going to look for that? Are you going to look at whether those chicks have those genes? I suspect we will in time, but we haven't looked at that just yet. Remind me, how many chicks has Kuiya got? Well, she had four in 2016, and she had three this year, so seven now. Good on her. Now, we've talked about Komaru and Horton holding the records this year for the greatest number of chicks. Just on the flip side of that, which females have been most successful? Overall, of all the females that have bred over time, Flossie is the outstanding producer. Not that she's bred in the last couple of years because she's been living on Hoturu. She's got 12 living offspring. This year, it would be Waikawa that ended up with five live chicks out of eight eggs that she laid. That's a pretty good tally for a female in a 
another vindication of your decision to do the double clutching. That's right, yes. So she ended up with three chicks from the second clutch and two from the first. Seven of her chicks hatched overall. So she's, she's doing extraordinarily well, actually. Now, the big moment, artificial insemination. Remind us why you're doing it. Well, there's two reasons, and it's to try and retain genetic diversity because, as we talked about just previously, not all males get to pass on their genes because some of those Stuart Island founders, for instance, just aren't, aren't getting the chance to mate. So we don't want to lose that potential. And also, the more frequently a kākāpō mates, the higher fertility rate of the eggs. So if, if a female mates just once, which is usually about half of the birds, they have about a 48% fertility rate. But if they mate with two males, they're more likely to have in the 90% success rate. So we don't know how to encourage them to mate multiple times with different males, but if we can use artificial insemination, we have that chance to, to provide that competition. Remind us when you started doing artificial insemination and whether you've been successful in the past. So we first started trialling that in 2008 but that was a very small breeding season so we didn't have much opportunity and then in 2009 we inseminated five females and we were successful with two of those birds and we still have three chicks from those inseminated eggs, which, of course, have bred this year. But all the work we've done since has been unsuccessful in 2011 and 14 and 2016 as well. We didn't manage to do many birds in 2011 and 2014 because they were very small breeding seasons, I think two in each season. But then we did about 15, I think, in 2016. Might have been only 13. Um, But none of those were successful and we've been really working hard this year to understand what is it that we have to do to get it right. We put a lot of effort into it this year, and we were really lucky that Meridian really backed us and, and gave us extra finance to help us out, and that gave us the opportunity to get four artificial insemination experts out from Gießen University in Germany, and they helped with the AI this year and we managed to inseminate 13 females and two of them twice so 15 inseminations and the big reveal da 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 <laughs> did you have any successes we did you finally did? after Ooh. after 10 years again we had success so i'm very pleased to say that we were successful with three females three of the 13 females Not quite as many as I'd like, but as I said, we tried a few different methods, so that that makes quite a difference there. So we were successful with Nora, Cindy and Margaret Marie. Excellent. And the great news is that Sinbad was the father of Nora's chick, and Stumpy was the father of Margaret Marie's chick, and Merv with Cindy although unfortunately both of Merv's eggs died early on. Oh, no! 
So that was very sad because he's a founder from Stewart Island and we've got no progeny from him at all. So I've been working hard with Merv to try and get some offspring from him, but it wasn't quite to be close, though. But again, those eggs, unfortunately, died at about eight days old, the very standard age of early embryo death. Most of the eggs that die early on die at about eight days old for some reason. So two living chicks? Yes, two living chicks. So I think Margaret Marie laid two eggs, and the first egg was very small, and that was infertile, but her second egg was more normal, and that hatched and is still alive. And Nora laid three eggs, and her first egg hatched and died at about four days old, and actually we didn't end up getting the paternity of that. That's the only chick that hatched that we didn't get the paternity from. And her second embryo was an early embryo death at, at about eight days old again. That was actually fathered by Tutacor, who she mated with naturally. So the third egg was Sinbad's, and um, we have that chick. Unfortunately, that's one of the chicks in hospital at Dunedin with a granuloma in his lung, but I'm hopeful that he will be improving. So Nora and Sinbad's is a boy chick? I yes. take it from that. And what about yes. Margaret Marie and, and Stumpies? Margaret Marie and Stumpies is also a boy. So are you happy about that? I am, yes, yes. I'm very happy that we've got a chick from Sinbad. The only chicks we've got from Stumpy now are from AI. So we got two chicks from Stumpy in 2009 with AI. And he mated with, I think, three different females this year, Hawkey, Zephyr, and Solstice for three clutches. So I think 13 eggs, and they were all infertile. So there's nothing wrong with his sperm. It may just be that he hasn't got his technique in the field downright. I think so, because every time I've looked at his sperm, it's very good, high-quality sperm, and the AI success is, is, is a backup of that. But there's something he's doing not quite right. <laughs> so Sinbad is, of course, Gulliver's brother. He's a Fjordland baby, so that Nora Sinbad chick... That's a delight to me because that's a Wynn Dynasty baby from Menora yes. and a Fiordland Dynasty baby from Richard Henry. Yes, yes, indeed. Oh, it's fantastic. It's very good. And, and, and Sinbad did mate the one time with Tohu and his eggs were infertile. So again, he might have poor technique as well. And being partially imprinted hand-read bird, I wouldn't be surprised if his technique's not great. Thanks, Daryl. That was Daryl Eason from the Kākāpō Recovery Team at the Department of Conservation. And that exciting Kākāpō news is part of the RNZ Kākāpō Files podcast, which you can find on any podcast app or at rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō. If you'd like to listen to anything again or check out pictures, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can follow along with the Elemental and Kākāpō Files podcast there and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast of Our Changing World at any podcast app, and I post links to all our stories on Twitter and Facebook, and you can find us there as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. 
Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Pour Marier. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.